1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went, Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messages to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul 
and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armour-bearers. Then Saul sent a word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Let's pray. Um, this is a chapter that has just about everything in it. Uh, rejection by God, acceptance by God, quenching and grieving the spirit, evil spirits, the spirit of God coming on um, David. And we need to seek God's help to understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth, word of truth. We thank you that your word is spirit and life. And we pray for understanding. Guide us by your Holy Spirit to not only grasp the meaning of the words, but the application, the relevance for our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm wondering if you can recall a time in your life when you've been rejected. I don't mean just given a bit of a cold shoulder, but really rejected. Most of us at some point or other have experienced that from someone else and it's not a very pleasant feeling. Um, I well remember travelling to university um, I had about a 40 to a 45 to 50 minute drive from the outer suburbs of Brisbane into near the centre of Brisbane for about three years doing my study. And it was a beautiful sunny morning. And I was um, enjoying the drive to uni and I looked across at a house that, that was just off to the side. There was a man and a woman and they were having a ding-dong argument. They were at it. And it, so much so that I glanced up the road ahead to see where, you know, how the traffic was. And the car in front of me was a reasonable way up. And I th so I thought, I'm going to have a bit more of a look here. Do I pull over? Do I try and intervene? What, what do I do? So I, I then had a good look out the window and I could see they were just... And I thought, oh, what do I do? And then I looked back out the windscreen. All I could see was Ford Escort. And the boot of the Ford Escort straight in front of me. It must have been about exactly the time that I had chosen to look away. They'd braked, indicated to the right and were turning. And I'd just been tootling along and I did my best to try and avoid the back of the car. But I won't go into all the detail, but it was a mess. I shunted the car... Um, not just straight down the road, because I tried to turn the wheel, it got spun into the front of oncoming traffic. So it was sandwiched, it was hit front and rear, the radiator went, stuff was going everywhere, the steering wheel collapsed. I could even see a bit of the spare tyre protruding through the boot because I'd hit it basically at full force, 60 kilometres an hour. My radiator had gone, both cars were written off and I was stunned, I was just... How did that happen? 
but she was hysterical. And I found out why she was hysterical. I found out why when her mother eventually arrived on the scene. Her mother, she, she couldn't believe what she was seeing, I don't think. I was over to the side of the road. The police had been called. I was booked for driving with undue care and attention. And she stormed over to me and she said, Look what you've done. My daughter was driving to uni. She's got an exam today. She asked if she could borrow the family car. We've only got one car and my husband's dying of cancer. And I need that car to take him to hospital. Look what you've done. And she's just right there. And she said, if I had an axe, I'd kill you on the spot. And I just... I... I couldn't say anything. I was just in utter shock. Now, I don't know if you've had anyone threaten to kill you with an axe, but it's not a nice feeling because it means they don't like you. It means, in fact, they wish you were dead. And all I knew was this person was not a safe person to be around, and I'm sure she concluded I was not a safe person to be anywhere near her family. Now, my reason for mentioning this is if we can experience that kind of visceral, physical reaction when someone rejects us and attacks us, can you imagine what it must have been like for Saul to be rejected by God? Rejected by God. Imagine the elders of Israel doing up Saul's tombstone. Here lies Saul, the man God regretted being king. The end of the chapter, verse 30, of of the previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 35, has this. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Saul mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul, king over Israel. Now, it could not stand in starker contrast than the verse following, verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons, to be king. Now, this chapter divides in two parts, but this first verse really merits a fair amount of attention. I want to spend some time looking at the significance of the fact that God chose Saul as king and anointed him for that role, and then some other things in the chapter will make more sense to us. I trust. So I'd like us to leave today with understanding three things. The significance of God choosing his own king, the effect of David being anointed by the Spirit, and how David served the king that he was going to replace. So first one. The significance of God choosing his own king. I want to take a good look at this. 
He says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him? I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. God was moving on from the regret of Saul to the one that he really wanted to be the king, David. There's there's something really important to understand here, and it's this. And it doesn't come out very well in our English translations. But in the Hebrew, there is... The word provided can be translated different ways depending on context. So the Hebrew word provided can be translated as choose, see, look at or appearance. It seems a bit unusual for us in English to figure that one root word could have so many different understandings, but it does. And it depends on the context. So, for instance, the NIV in verse 1 translates it as, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. The English Standard Version has, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And that is literally what it says in, in the best kind of English. I have provided or I have chosen. So it's that Hebrew word provide that can mean choose, see, look at, or appearance. Now, there's a little footnote in the New King James that gives us even more understanding. And it says, literally, I have seen among his sons a king for myself. So God looked amongst Jesse's sons, all eight of them, and he could see a king for himself. Not all of the sons, one of the sons. He could see it. So that gives us an idea of what's happening in this chapter. God is seeing what we can't see. And you see that comes out in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance, there's that word again, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. There's the word again. People look, there's the word again, at the outward appearance, there's the word again. But the Lord looks at the heart, there's the word again. It's just coming out repeatedly and it means provided based upon what is really the case, what is really needed, what is seen. Now we get a glimpse of this in Genesis 1. It repeatedly says after each day, and the Lord saw that it was good. God saw, that's the same word. He saw the rightness, he saw the appropriateness. He saw what he had done fitted the purpose. And he saw, that's good. It wasn't just a statement of uh, something that looked nice. Yeah, I like the look of that. It's more... It's good. This works. This, this, this is, delights my heart. And the word play throughout this chapter shows God contrasting the people's choice of a king in Saul and God's choice of a king 
in David. In Saul, God had given Israel the king they were after, the one who was tall, dark and handsome, the one whose appearance appeared great. If you're going to select someone who's going to be, uh, uh, appear good for the role, Saul was the kind of guy you'd want to have. He stood head and shoulders above the rest of his fellow Jews. And it was purely based upon appearance because in his heart, There was nothing of any merit to God. What a contrast with David, though. The king of God's choosing. And God could look into his heart and say, it's good. This this is the man I want to be king. He is suited for the purpose, unlike Saul. So it's really important for us to take this on board. In a world that's all about appearance, youth and beauty, we need to remember that God sees everyone's heart. God does not take pleasure in the legs of a man or a woman. Psalm 147. He's not interested in beauty contests. He's not interested in what we look at. He's interested in what's in the heart. We know that from this verse 7. The Lord looks into the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The the word of the Lord, God's word, distinguishes joints and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John's gospel tells us about Jesus. That when he did miracles, many people followed him. Because they could see the miracles. They liked what they saw. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in people's hearts. And so he did not entrust himself to them. It's a waste of time and money to get caught up with the latest fashions and tattoos and body image, the latest hairdos and phones and renovations if we ignore our heart if we're not paying attention to what's in our heart, because that's what's important to God. He's going to remain at arm's length from us, not really have his favour rest on us properly, if we're taken up with trinkets and things that just please our eyes. It's at the root of the problem when Eve sinned. She saw The tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, and so she took it. She was led by what she could see. Listen to what 1 Peter 3, verse 3 says. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes, Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. It seems that David had a much better understanding of that than Saul did. David knew that in his heart of hearts he needed to love God. Saul seems to have been more about uh, having people respect him, look up to him, and appear to be uh, 
good in people's eyes. Saul showed no signs of eagerness for God except for when he got into trouble. And then he'd go to Samuel, pray for me. Ask the Lord. Whereas David, you look at David, he wrote psalms, he danced before the Lord. He, his, his heart was for God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. Acts 13.22 comments on this chapter. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He is suited for the purpose. He will fit the role. He will do what I want. So the writer is highlighting the deterioration of Saul and the rise of David here in 1 Samuel 16. The king of God's choosing could not stand in starker contrast than the king that the people wanted. And this begs the question, it brings us to, to this next point then, the effect of David anoint, being anointed by the Spirit. What is the key difference between Saul and David? The answer the New Testament would give is that Saul was shaped and influenced by the flesh. David was shaped and influenced by the spirit. When we understand this, other things in the chapter make a lot more sense, like Samuel's fear that Saul would try to kill him. Saul is driven by the flesh. If he was driven by the spirit, he wouldn't try and kill God's prophet. Samuel knows and the Lord knows that it's true, that Saul will try and kill Samuel because he's driven by the flesh. The trembling of the elders of Bethlehem who asked Samuel, do you come in peace? Samuel's coming to do the work of the Lord and he assures them and says, yes, I come in peace. Because they might think, well, we know what Saul's like. Are you coming here? They would have known that God had rejected Saul for being king, from being king. And, and if, if, why is Samuel coming here and Saul is not here? Is... They knew what Saul was like and they wondered whether it was going to create trouble because people who are driven by the flesh are bothered by the things of the flesh and outward appearance. They understood this and Samuel reassures them, no, I come in peace. I'm on on God's work. And then the spirit leaving Saul and a harmful spirit from God coming to torment him. We'll come back to that. But the main thing to see here in this chapter is that flesh and spirit cannot coexist peacefully. They are natural enemies. We know from Galatians 5, 16 and 17 that this is a fact. Flesh and spirit are in conflict with one another. Let me read to you Galatians 5, 16 and 17. So I say, walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now this is a key thing for us to take on board too. If we do whatever we want, we're going to end up sinning against God. Why? Because of our heart. Our heart is deceitful. Our heart is where sin reigns. This passage warns us not to simply follow our heart, despite everything in our culture saying, do what you want, follow your heart, be who you're made to be inside, just just follow your heart. But if we do that, we're going to just do what we want, not what God wants. We know this from Genesis. Now I'm mentioning uh, Genesis 6 for a reason because we're going to see the word regret, regret, regret come out just like we do in 1 Samuel. Genesis 6. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal, literally they are flesh. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. We're seeing exactly what 1 Samuel 16 describes, when the Lord regrets making Samuel is, uh, Saul is king. So the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And David finds favour in the eyes of the Lord. You see, the eyes of the Lord that searched Noah and his generation, that searched David and Saul's hearts in their generation, search our hearts in our generation too. He knows those who are his by his gracious spirit that he puts in them. The presence or absence of the spirit of God in a person's heart is what makes the difference. Flesh and spirit are in contrast with one another, opposition. So God's spirit was grieved by the willful disobedience of Saul. We're told that. Since you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as being king. The king who is just like them, with all the wrong motivations, would not do what God wanted him to do. God searched Saul's heart and examined his mind and did not like what he found. God saw that he was not good. But when he looked at David, he said, this is the one, anoint him. Now it's interesting that Saul had experienced the power of God's spirit. We know back in chapter 10, the spirit Samuel had prophesied to him and said, The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with the prophets and you will be changed into a different person. 
And a few verses later, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, this is straight after Samuel was anointed to be king, uh, Saul was anointed to be king, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he joined in their prophesying. But it doesn't seem to have made a permanent difference to Saul. Saul's disobedience quenched and grieved the Spirit of God. It's like the Spirit could only be on him, not in him. He was never God's choice as king. So God's verdict on Saul should act as a wake-up call for us. Anyone who calls himself a Christian, we need to ask ourselves some heart-searching questions. Is my heart becoming hardened towards God? Am I quenching or grieving God's spirit? Are are my actions honourable in God's sight? or not so now if we just follow through the chapter with this sort of understanding of the significance of being chosen uh, appearance and 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 seeing and god looking on the heart just notice how things unfold just quickly samuel is concerned that saul will try to kill him We've looked at that and it's because he knows Saul's driven by the flesh. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. All the way through you see the Lord said Samuel did. The Lord said Samuel did. So he obeys God and he goes and he explains to them that he's come in peace. They welcome him. Verse 6, when they arrive, Samuel's keen to get on with the real reason he's there. The real reason he's there is to anoint the king. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him when Samuel looks at Eliad and he says, wow, this this guy's surely got to be the right one. And one by one by one, they're named. Abinadab, Shammah, and then all seven of his sons pass by and the Lord keeps saying I've not chosen him, I've not chosen him this isn't the one, this isn't the one the Lord is seeing into their heart they are being as rejected for the role as Saul was rejected for the role and then we come down to verse 12 where Jesse had said look you know, I do have one more son but he's looking after the sheep Saul says, Samuel says, go get him, bring him here. So he sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. But that's not why God chose him to be king. It wasn't because of his handsome features. It's because of what was in his heart. A man after his own heart. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Samuel then went to Ramah. 
The Spirit of the Lord, the NIV translates it as came powerfully on David. Literally, it means came rushing on David. The Spirit of, the God, the Spirit of God just rushed on his anointed. And it's got overtones of the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God rushed down from heaven. The sound of a rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire sit on the disciples' heads and they are changed. Look at the transformation in Peter on the day of Pentecost from one who'd been a vacillator to one who is bold and proclaims the word of God because the Spirit of God took the word of God and made it active in his heart. This is what we see happening with David. But the exact reverse happens now in the, in the second half of the chapter with uh, Saul. Uh, just by the way, isn't it interesting that God called Saul when he was searching for his father's donkeys? God calls David when he's looking after his father's sheep, just going about their daily lives and... God has a plan and a purpose. We need to take that on board. Some people have entertained uh, angels unawares, just going about the course of daily life. I think uh, we almost had an instance of that in what uh, Chris shared this morning. You, you don't know what, what's going to happen when you go and buy a ladder at Agfest. You know, there could be a whole, diff- you know, whole story behind it, and, and there is, because God is working out his purposes And his purposes are to do with what goes on in the human heart. So let's look now at this last section, David in Saul's service. The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. There's a real contrast here, isn't there? Saul, driven by the flesh, is rejected. David chosen for what God sees in his heart, is anointed. God's spirit leaves Saul and is replaced by a tormenting spirit. And the spirit of God literally rushes on David instead. What is happening here is God is removing the spirit, the outward anointing of the spirit on Saul because the Lord was rejecting him. And the Lord was was chastising Saul and, and trying to get him to come back to him by sending a spirit that would torment him, a harmful spirit from the Lord. We don't really know exactly what it was, whether it was like a depressive spirit or whether it was uh, self-harm, but we do know that, that it afflicted him, it was horrible. And, and God sent that spirit. I don't think there's any way around that. There's mystery here. It's, it's hard to... Uh, I don't profess to know the full you know, insight into that. But we do know elsewhere in the Bible that even the evil spirits and Satan himself are under God's control. Job... Satan comes in amongst the sons of God and the Lord says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And he gives Job over to, within reason, within certain limits, to the control of Satan. We know in the book of Kings that 
God says to, um, in the council in heaven, how am I going to work this out? And one of the, and we're told an angel or a spirit comes forward and says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord says, yes, do that. You will succeed. So God has control even over the realms of evil spirits. They're, not, they're in rebellion against God, but God can still make them serve his purposes. God is king of kings and lord of lords, including the realm of the devil and, and evil spirits. So what's happening here is God is pouring out his favour on David and withdrawing his favour from Saul. And instead of favour, there's affliction, a chastising. Saul's attendants can see what's happening. Verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 15. See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when an evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. Often music can have that kind of effect too. It, It can help soothe, especially if it's the right kind of music. And one of the servants said, I have seen a son of David of Bethlehem, a Jesse of Bethlehem. And, and he knows how to play a liar. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. That is the crucial indicator. The Lord is with him. So Saul sends messengers to Jesse. Send me your son David who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son to David. Now think of the irony here. Saul, God regrets him being king. God's favour is coming off Saul. The very person God is now choosing and placing his spirit on, Saul unwittingly enlists in his service. It's like... The writer here is just saying, look what God's doing. Look, 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 pay attention here because this is God. And, and when we see that unfolding, it just makes what David does all the more remarkable. Think what it must have been like for David, knowing he'd been anointed for the kingship. But he... He does not lift his hand against Saul until God sovereignly removes him. God gives him over for this period of affliction, tormenting. I guess God is wanting Saul to come to repentance. Every opportunity is given. The new anointed is brought alongside him to be with him. But we know in subsequent chapters what eventually happens is Saul who comes to play, uh, uh, David who comes to play the, the instrument to soothe Saul, eventually uh, Saul tries to pin him to the wall with a spear and attacks him. Flesh and spirit are in opposition to one another. Now these huge um, implications and applications here in terms of the gospel. Jesus is God's anointed son. He's David's greatest son. He's descended from David. All the genealogies in the New Testament point that out. 
he also learned obedience from what he suffered. But he learned obedience to his parents. He submitted himself to his parents. He was the king in waiting, if you like. He's a child, no, growing in favour with God and man. And the Lord is training him when he's, when he's baptised with, with the Holy Spirit. Immediately he's led by the Spirit to be tempted or tested by the devil. Having the Spirit does not necessarily mean that you, it's all going to be easy. It wasn't for David. David had to wait another X number of years before he actually ascended the throne and he had to be the king in waiting until God installed him on the throne, even though he was anointed for the role. And David manifests huge patience here, serving the one he knows or he was soon to find out is going to try and kill him. Love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Think of what Jesus said in Luke 9.23. Whoever would come after me and be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And that's what we're seeing with David. He's following the Lord. He's obeying the Lord and he's doing the word of the Lord. He's walking in obedience to God, not taking matters into his own hand like Saul did. He's a man after God's own heart. He's, he's being shaped and influenced by the spirit, not by the flesh. We need to ask ourselves these questions. Is my heart God's throne? If I know that Jesus has shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sin, does that take root in my heart to the point where it shapes how I live. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we know the Lord has lived and died for us and risen again and we belong to him, live out in obedience. Walk in, in like David did, trusting God, even though things don't seem to be working out as you'd expect. He probably thought that God would quickly remove Saul and he'd soon become king. But year after year went by and there was a delay. Is my heart God's throne? Where I know God's good hand is on me, do I live to please him? And secondly, is my heart filled with the spirit of God? Or am I quenching and grieving the spirit? Ephesians 5 warns us about that. It says, do not quench the spirit of God, but sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, rejoicing in the Lord. David wrote so many of the Psalms whereby we praise God. Is my heart filled with the Spirit of God? Do you take delight in God? Do you use music to help stir your heart to be filled with the Spirit of God? Is my heart like David's? 
willing to serve Jesus despite any foolish problems and troubles that I encounter? Or we, are we naively expecting just because God has come into our life, he'll automatically solve our problems? No. He often wants to train us in obedience through the problems, to teach us to trust him, to walk in his ways and do what's on his heart rather than what's in our heart and what we want and what we desire. So is my heart God's throne? Is my heart filled with God's spirit? Is my heart like David's? Really, is my heart like Jesus? He's the man after God's own heart. He's God with skin on. He gives us a pattern that we might follow in his footsteps. And the Lord loves that gentle and precious spirit, that quiet responsiveness of heart that says yes to God rather than yes to self. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you are our God and Saviour through Jesus Christ. All who receive your Son, you give the right to become your, ch- your children and you place your Spirit in us. But Father, we acknowledge that we need to keep in step with the Spirit lest we quench and grieve your Spirit. Will you please teach us, Lord, to live like Jesus lived, obeying the Father, doing those things that please him. Lord, may we be the kind of people that when you look into our heart of hearts, you can see your own handiwork. And you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. Help us to be those who trust you, who love you. May we not be like Saul who did his own thing, who would not trust, who took matters into his own hands time after time, who eventually turned to persecute your anointed. Father, we ask that we would be those who are lovers of God, not haters of the ways of God. Turn us, we pray, Lord. Open our hearts to see that in the little things you want us to obey you, to trust you. When we are convicted of our sin, may we turn like David did and confess our sin to Almighty God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Teach us, Lord, that our heart might be filled with love for you. Change our heart. Make it your throne. Make it the place where your spirit resides and rules from the throne, influencing our decision-making, changing our priorities shaping and influencing our goals and attitudes and desires of the heart 
that we might live like Jesus lived, a man after your heart. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.